Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schaus. Episode 10, Ivan the Great, Part 1. There is a Russian legend that in 1440, a monk named Michael Klopsky proclaimed that there was great joy in Moscow as a son, a boy who would do great things, who would become famous, was born. In 1462, Vasily the Blind, also known as Vasily II, was dead and a 22-year-old, who was already co-ruler with his father, took sole possession of the title of Grand Prince of Moscow, a role he would hold on to for an astonishing 43 years. The Russian people would know of this man for the rest of history. At the time, he was known as Ivan Vasilievich, Ivan III. History would know him as Ivan the Great. He would lay the groundwork for the beginnings of an empire. Before we talk about the life of Ivan, we need to backtrack a bit and again talk about the fall of Constantinople, the gem of the Eastern Roman Empire, the seat of the Orthodox Church. In the years leading up to its eventual fall in 1453, the outside world knew the end was near. Some of the city's wealthier citizens were already leaving, but where to go? If they held their religion dear to their hearts, Moscow was the place to head to as the Russian city was thinking itself as the third Rome. Slowly, refugees from Constantinople trickled in to Moscow. Churchmen, aristocrats, artists, diplomats, and other men of expertise in military and administrative affairs arrived in the center of Russian life. But unlike the Romans, who would rule and tolerate multiple nationalities, the Muscovite leaders demanded that the incoming peoples russify themselves as now Russia was the center of the Orthodox world. What is important to note here is that these incoming refugees helped define who the Russian people were. Were they a Chinggisid successor Khanate, part of the Mongol remnant steppe confederation, or the legitimate successor to the Byzantine Empire? While the latter is an obvious choice, in hindsight, which I've talked about, the decision must not have been quite so sure until the flavor of Moscow took a very Byzantine turn with the fall of Constantinople. So when his father Vasily the Blind dies in 1462, Ivan was 22 years old. He was already co-ruler for a few years, as his father proclaimed in order to prevent any false claimants to the throne, as Ivan did have four younger brothers, and Vasily did not want his son to go through the same problems he had with his uncle Yuri and his sons, Basil and Dmitri. It was to this solid foundation, with little argument over who was boss, that Ivan takes over. It is because of this unchallenged authority that Ivan, in his 43-year reign, was to be known as the gatherer of Russian lands. Now, lest you think there were few threats to Ivan's rule, think differently. Threats abounded throughout the land surrounding Moscow, and two important ones being the remnants of the Golden Horde and pesky yet mighty Lithuania, who laid their own claim to the title as Keeper of the Kievian Flame. With the Horde's successors, Moscow had to deal with the Khanates of Crimea, Siberia, Kazan, and Astrakhan. Lithuania began to team up with their Catholic brethren in Poland. Other lesser, but not minor, threats came from Moscow's western rivals, from Sweden, Denmark, and the Teutonic Knights. And of course there was the scourge of Christianity, 
the Muslim Turks who had already taken the orthodox center of the world, Constantinople. But this ruler, this Ivan, was up for the task and then some. First, there was a city-state that had to be dealt with, one whose fierce independence irked many a ruler of Moscow, one whose territory had been untouched by even an enemy so mighty as the Mongol horde. The city of Novgorod had to be bought into the fold. The Republic of Novgorod the Great, as some have called it, or Lord Novgorod the Great, as mentioned as a chapter heading by Russian historian Nicholas Ryazanovsky, as recounted many times in my past podcasts, was a very different, independent city that was totally unwilling to fall under the influence from any outsider, not from Kiev and certainly not from Moscow. In the Chronicle of Novgorod, there is a passage that reflects this feeling of independence, and it goes, The men of Novgorod showed Knyaz Vesvolod the road. We do not want thee. Go whither thou wilt. He went to his father and to Russia. Laying northwest of Moscow and east of Piskov, Novgorod was split in the center by the Volkov River, the west bank being home to the St. Sophia side, where the archbishop's palace lie alongside the cathedral of San Sophia. The east side was the area that made Novgorod powerful, the commercial side. This is where the wharves lie, the boats that carried goods from afar. This is where St. Peter's Yard, the thriving marketplace, and the Peskov Yard was, where merchants from far away came to trade furs, honey, wax, and other products gathered from the surrounding forests. Novgorod was also the place that in 862 Rurik came as a Varangian invader at the dawn of Russian history. Novgorod's importance was because of its position on a celebrated trade route from the Varangians to the Greeks. One thing that kept Novgorod from the same apanage strife that tortured first Kiev and later Moscow under Vasily II was that the princes there ruled the city at the population's whim. There were times when the citizens turned back a prince without even letting him in. It was even religiously independent as it appointed its own archbishop. Two positions, elected by the Novgorodian Vetch, helped keep outsider princes' influence in check. They were the Posadnik and the Taisiaski, with the former being the prince's main associate in charge of the army when the prince was away. The Taisiaski was the town's regiment commander, and he settled commercial disputes. These two men, along with the archbishop, kept the prince's power in check. But as time went on, the democratic vetch began to lose its influence to the Council of Notables. This reflected the reality that power, both economic and political, was more and more being concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. These powerful families controlled the appointments of the Posadnik and the Taisiaski by the 14th century. This was to create additional social tensions which were already growing. As is often seen throughout history, the more concentrated wealth and power becomes, the seeds of revolution and social conflict grow. Think French and Russian revolutions as just two examples in history. There are many more. Ivan III, though, was to use this social tension to his advantage. Throughout its history to date, from the time of Kiev, the Mongol domination and the Apanage period, 
Novgorod maintained a stubborn independence and an imminent, if not preeminent, role in Russian history. It was something Ivan was no longer willing to tolerate. Personal liberties within the town were beginning to erode as the wealthy boyars took control of more and more of the running of the city. Ivan, fully aware of this, slipped his agents into the populace to stir things up. The people were for the annexation of their city by Moscow, as were some boyars, but the majority of the elite were dead set against it. So against it, they did the unthinkable. They signed a mutual defense treaty with Lithuania and Poland in 1471. This was totally unacceptable to an enraged Ivan. He gathered his army and headed north to Novgorod. Surrounding the city, he laid siege and decided to wait it out. The boyars gathered their forces and exited the city gates to confront Ivan's army. It did not go well for them. The army of Novgorod was made up of the common people, who had no stomach for fighting fellow Russians or to back pro-Lithuanian and pro-Polish boyars. Many of the soldiers defected, and the archbishop's own personal regiment refused to fight. So, with their prospects being pretty grim, with little or no fighting force left, the boyars sued for peace. Ivan made the ruling class members as well as the archbishop prostrate themselves in front of him and accept Ivan as their lord. Immediately, Ivan abrogated the treaty with Poland and Lithuania, annexed huge tracts of land from the Novgorod's holdings, and forced them to accept the Metropolitan as the selector of their archbishop. The citizens of Novgorod as a whole were thrilled with the humiliation of the boyars and the joining with Moscow, their Russian brethren. Ivan began to give money freely to the pro-Moscovites to stir things up. There was growing concern in Moscow about a continued pro-Lithuanian movement going on amongst certain boyars, with their lead family being the Boretskys. Ivan needed something to justify another invasion, and it came in the way of a comment made by an ambassador from Novgorod, who, according to James Duffy and Vincent Ricci in their book Tsars, Russian Rulers for Over a Thousand Years, called Ivan sovereign instead of lord. Ivan quickly asked the ambassador, Does Novgorod recognize me as its sovereign? The ambassador, embarrassed, went back to Novgorod to consult with the boyars and the vetch, which was now fully controlled by the elite, waiting patiently in Moscow until the response came. We pay homage to you as our lord, but not as sovereign. We cannot let your governors live in the Yaroslav Palace. Now, the Yaroslav Palace was a place no outside prince was allowed to live in, which Ivan rightfully took as an insult and gave him the reason he needed to declare war. In November of 1478, Ivan the Great was at the gates of Novgorod and laid siege once more, begging for help that was never to come from the Lithuanians. Two weeks later, without so much as a fight, Novgorod surrendered. The boyars tried bribing Ivan to let them retain some semblance of independence, but he would have none of it. They were still refusing to allow Ivan into Yaroslav Palace as well. Ivan was furious, so he upped the ante. He demanded that the bell they call, that called the Vetch to order be delivered to him so he could ship it back to Moscow. The jig was up for Novgorodian independence, and they knew it. 
eight days later, with rioting going on between pro- and anti-Muscovite factions, they acquiesced, hoping that Ivan would be lenient in his treatment of the boyars who opposed him. Oh, were they in for a rude awakening. Ivan, in his rage, and in some historians' view, made a huge mistake, exiled, executed, and replaced 8,000 leading Novgorodian families with Moscow's wealthy and loyal merchants. Within a few short years, Novgorod's stature as a major economic hub was all but wiped out, as Ivan also threw out the German merchants who refused to Russify and broke relations with the multinational Hanseatic League. Novgorod the Great slipped back into being little more than a backwater town. Ivan proceeded to annex all of Novgorodian-controlled lands, some three million acres. Other cities during the years surrounding the defeat of Novgorod also fell under irons, Ivan's iron fist. First Yaroslav, then Dmitrov, then Rostov capitulated. By the time Ivan dies in 1505, he tripled the size of Moscow's territory. Next week, we delve into more of Ivan's personal life, including his two wives, Maria of Tver, and the one who would legitimize his claim as the new Caesar, the new leader of the Orthodox world, Sophia, born Zoe Peleolog, niece of the last emperor of Byzantium, Constantine Eleventh. And now for a new segment, This Week in Russian History, June 27th through July 3rd. I hope you like this. It was something that uh, I thought might be of interest to my listeners of the Russian Rulers podcast. In 1175, this week, Grand Prince Andrei Bogolyubsky is murdered in his bed. In 1704, Sofia Alexeyevna, the regent who was disposed by the rightful heir to the Russian throne by Peter the Great, dies in the monastery she was sent to by Peter. In 1709, Peter the Great defeats Charles XII of Sweden at the Battle of Poltova. In 1853, the Russian army crosses the Pruth River, sparking the Crimean War. In 1905, the battleship Potemkin uprising occurs. In 1908, the Tunguska event occurs with one of the largest explosions in human history, occurring caused by a comet or meteor that hit Siberia. In 1914, Franz Ferdinand of Austria and his wife Sophie are assassinated in Sarajevo, precipitating the start of World War I, which was, to be, which was to prove disastrous for Russia and would lead to the fall of the Romanov dynasty. In 1974, Mikhail Baryshnikov, the famous ballet star, defected to Canada from the Soviet Union. And in 1991, the Warsaw Pact is dissolved ending the Soviets' and later Russia's dominance over Eastern Europe. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to stop by the websites at russianrulers.podhoster.com and markshouse.com. I'm also on Facebook at Russian Rulers History Podcast. Uh, please go over there and sign up and make some comments, and let's get some discussions going on Russian history. I'm sure there's a lot of you out there. Uh, don't forget to make a suggestion, and as always, das vidania, ispasiba bolshoya.